Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Good evening. I'm Caitlin Collins. Welcome to The Source. We'll get a live update on the latest on the ground in Israel with Anderson Cooper in just a moment. But I want to start tonight with some ominous breaking news for Donald Trump. I'm not even talking about how a third former lawyer of his just took a plea deal in the state of Georgia earlier today, which Jenna Ellis did do in a courtroom through tears. We'll get more on that in a second. But according to a new report tonight, special counsel Jack Smith has secured what would be his most valuable witness yet in the federal election interference case against the former president, his final chief of staff, Mark Meadows. ABC News is reporting tonight that Meadows has been granted immunity and has met with Smith's team at least three times this year alone, including once before a federal grand jury while he had that immunity. According to ABC, Meadows allegedly told investigators he did not believe the election was stolen and that Trump was, quote, being dishonest when he claimed victory after the polls closed in November of 2020. His attorney told CBS News that that story was, in his words, largely inaccurate. He did not say what he believed was inaccurate. But for more on this breaking news and what it could mean, I want to bring in CNN's political analyst and the New York Times senior political correspondent, Maggie Haberman, and also our CNN senior legal analyst, Ellie Honig, who are both here with us. And I should note, Maggie, CNN has not confirmed this reporting yet. This is from ABC News. But if this is the case, if Mark Meadows did get this level of immunity and he's there testifying, how devastating do you think that would be for Donald Trump? Look, based on the details in the ABC story, and I, and I tip my hat to them for getting the details of this testimony. They are explosive. They are interesting. They show Mark Meadows disavowing his own book, which bluntly everyone else had disavowed, so he might as well too, um, <laughs> under oath. Uh, and, you know, it tells you that he knows what he has to do when he's in legal peril. I don't know what it means because I don't totally understand the description of, of the type of conditions he was testifying under. I don't know whether immunity is being used colloquially or whether there is you know, something that is more tailored, uh, such as in a proffer offer. I just don't know, and, and I assume that that will become clear as time goes on. Well, Ellie, walk us through, I mean, what does that mean? What would be the difference in a proffer agreement, full immunity? I mean, what are the other levels of this, essentially? So there are a lot of different flavors of cooperation, as Maggie was saying. Think of it as three different levels. The sort of lowest level, the, the most informal, is what we call a proffer agreement, which is where someone, a witness, comes in, offers their testimony, and a prosecutor says, we want to hear what you have to say. We're not going to use what you tell us here today against you. It's the feeling out stage. The next level up is what we call immunity. That would be formal immunity, where you say, okay, we prosecutors are interested in what you have to say. We think it's truthful. We think it's important. You've taken the fifth because you don't want to testify. The way we overcome that is we say as prosecutors, okay, we're going to go to a court order and get an order from a judge giving you immunity, meaning you will testify fully and we will not use your testimony against you. And for all practical purposes, we will not prosecute you. And then the top level is if you think the person has participated in a crime and has to be charged accordingly, then you enter into what we know is a full cooperation agreement, meaning, again, we're going to use you, Caitlin, sorry, you're sitting right here. You will plead guilty. Not guilt committed any crimes that I'm aware of, so that's fine. <laughs> I take your word for it. You will plead guilty to what we've charged you with. 
and we will enter into an agreement that you'll give full testimony at the end of that Prosecutors will write a letter to your judge saying she was a great cooperator. She deserves a huge break at sentencing. Okay, and so what we don't know is what level, if he right. has gotten this immunity, what level that would be. If it was that second tier, yeah. I mean, what and there was a court order. I mean, what would that mean for for what he, what he's telling them if he's gone before Jack Smith's team three times this year in a federal grand jury? So prosecutors do not hand out immunity agreements like candy. You are very careful because you're giving away a lot. What you're saying as a prosecutor is, we're going to give you a free pass here, essentially, but two things. One, we believe this testimony. We think it's correct, true, credible. And two, we need it. We need it. Because what you have to do is you actually have to do internal paperwork at DOJ first and say, hey, we have this witness. He's taken the fifth, but we really need his testimony. Here's why it's worth giving him a pass. You have to get that approved in DOJ. Then you have to walk it across the street to a judge who signs it. Usually judges. Is that something that... Jack Smith approves or that Attorney General Merrick Garland would approve here? So Jack Smith in the first instance, would it go to Maine Justice? Probably not. Jack Smith as special counsel has given enough independence that he could probably make that approval himself. Yeah. I mean, and Maggie, we're hearing from a Trump spokesman tonight. I mean, they kind of issued the same statement with different sentences and different orders in <laughs> response to these stories. They say wrongful, unethical leaks underscore how detrimental these cases are to democracy, the system of justice. But I mean... This has kind of been something that people in Trump world have suspected for a long time, that Mark Meadows was doing something with prosecutors because his name wasn't on that indictment that came out in Washington. Correct. And he, there was very little of Mark Meadows actually in that indictment that was clearly identifiably him. My colleagues and I actually wrote about that, that he was walking this line between sort of dealing with Jack Smith's team. I, I don't want to say cooperating because I, I don't have reason to believe that's what it is. Um, but and, and dealing with Georgia, which he had clearly turned his back on and where he was charged. The fact that he was charged in Georgia, I mean, and Ellie would know more than I do about this, but this raises, for me anyway, some questions about just how much immunity he would be given because he is already a problematic witness in a lot of ways. He wrote a whole book that it, he testified much the opposite to, right? He And he gave a bunch of other public statements. He testified in Georgia. There's, there's a lot of things that a defense lawyer could use to try to poke holes at him. So I don't know what that means. I'm glad yeah. you brought the book up because what ABC is reporting tonight is one of the quotes that Mark Meadows told to Jack Smith's team was, obviously, we didn't win, is what he says he told them in hindsight. Uh, they also say that he told them, you know, that the election was stolen and rigged with help from allies and liberal media who ignored actual evidence of fraud. Also in his book, he says the people who rigged this election knew that eventually these irregularities would come to light. So they conducted the operation, then attacked anyone who dared ask questions about what they had done. I mean, if you're if you're Jack Smith, if you're a grand jury, you see what he's testifying now. You saw what he wrote in his book that came out after the election. How do you take that? I'm having flashbacks here to my prosecutor years because a lot of times the reality is in a perfect world, someone like Mark Meadows, who's a key witness, would just come clean right off the bat and wouldn't have lied to the public for three years and written 320 pages of a book filled with lies. But the reality is you sometimes have to take your cooperators as they come, and they always have baggage. Definitionally, if they're going to be on the inside of a crime, right. they did something bad usually. And the question is, A, do you believe that person's fully come clean? And B, can you put this person in front of a jury and explain to a jury why they were, in Mark Meadows' case, he was lying in his book and for three years but now he's made a 180. It's not always the easiest sell. We're kind of getting into the weeds of this, and obviously the three of us have followed this very closely. But if, yeah. if you're sitting at home and you've been trying with a whiteboard to keep track of all the <laughs> Trump legal <laughs> developments, yeah. please, I hope you're having a glass of wine <laughs> while you're doing that. But what do you, I mean, why does this matter? Why yeah. is this 
bad right. for Trump if this is accurate. Because now DOJ believes that they can use Mark Meadows' testimony. Mark Meadows was Donald Trump's right hand at his side, literally, throughout the key yeah. weeks, days, and months leading up to and during January 6th as well. Yes, and, and Mark Meadows is also somebody who, to the point of what, you know, the things he said at various points, we've talked about this before in, on, on air. Mark Meadows is somebody who was known for saying different things to different audiences. He was known as trying to please whoever he was talking to. And I think this was the, the first example we have seen in detail. Now, look, he, again, he testified in Georgia for, for several hours. Yeah. Um, so there, there is examples uh, there that are, that are under oath, but or at least a uh, threat of perjury. But this feels a little different in terms of the, some of the specifics of what he is said to have said. And this really drills down on him, according to ABC, saying bluntly, this wasn't stolen. He supposedly told Trump that they weren't proving this and that he had questions about it. That was the first time I had heard anything like that. Yeah, and I so, think people like Bill Barr and Pat Cipollone and all the people yeah. there would have a lot of questions if this was... And, and, I, and so I think that we're going to hear more, right, about what he may or may not have said. But there is no question, as Ellie said, Mark Meadows was at the center of so much of this. He was talking to so many people, and he could speak to Trump's mindset in a very specific way. So in the context of all of this. This report just came out tonight, but also this morning, something happened very quickly to where only one CNN reporter was in the courtroom, actually, because it came together so quickly in Georgia. That is Jenna Ellis. She is the former Trump campaign attorney. Our viewers will know her when they when they see her here in just a moment. She accepted a plea deal. She pleaded not guilty, or she pleaded guilty today in the state of Georgia in that election of interference case. I just want to remind our, our viewers who Jenna Ellis is, what she used to say previously, and we'll end with what she said in court today. This is an elite strike force team that is working on behalf of the president and the campaign to make sure that our constitution is protected. President Trump is right that there was widespread fraud. The election was stolen and President Trump won by a landslide. We have this overwhelming evidence of fraud. This election was fraudulent. It was corrupted. All of these uh, false and fraudulent results. I endeavored to represent my client to the best of my ability. I relied on others, including lawyers with many more years of experience than I, to provide me with true and reliable information. If I knew then what I know now, I would have declined to represent Donald Trump in these post-election challenges. I look back on this whole experience with deep remorse. I mean, Maggie, it's as someone who read her tweets, right. watched her appearances, it's kind of stunning to hear the tears today. I suspect she has deep regret, which is sort of a different thing than remorse. Um, but yes, what she was saying for a very long time was that, you know, Donald Trump was in the right and that he was going to be shown right. And there was a point when she stopped saying that in around 2021. And that was when Trump was starting to tell people that he was going to be reinstated. And, and she had a, a break with him around that. But she was one of the biggest proponents around, around this. She was traveling with Rudy Giuliani to these hearings. And you know, there have been two other lawyer pleas uh, ahead of her, Sidney Powell and Kenneth Cheesebro, um, in, in Georgia. She's the one who actually really had the most contact with Trump, and she had the most contact with Giuliani. And so I think that she is actually in a very different position than they are to talk about. How bad is this for, for Donald Trump? Well, so I think Maggie hit on exactly the main point I want to know as a prosecutor, which is what was her dealings with Donald Trump? Yep. What were those conversations? We really don't have a great sense of that. I mean, it is notable to see her. She was so aggressive in pushing mm -hmm. the election fraud lie. I think you can see the contrast in that clip. And it's notable that she's now saying, that was BS, and I now know it. Right. But the key to me, that, that's fine. That's interesting atmospherically. But what were those one-on-one -on -one right. conversations with Trump? That's what I want to know. Yeah. Well, prosecutors may soon know that. Yes. Ellie Honig, Maggie Haberman, a lot of developments tonight. Thank you both.
Up next, we are going to go back live to the ground in Israel. Anderson Cooper is there as we are getting disturbing new audio that was played out loud today at the United Nations of what appears to be a Hamas fighter bragging to his parents about killing Jews in Israel. The parents of an American hostage of, who has been taken by Hamas were also at the United Nations today. They're here with me in studio tonight as they are desperately waiting on word of their son. That's in a moment. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life, wherever you get your podcasts. Tonight, CNN has obtained disturbing audio, and I'm not even sure disturbing goes enough, far enough to describe what it is that you're about to hear. It's of a Hamas terrorist, they say, who called his parents to brag about how many Jews that he had killed during that October 7th attack on Israel. The terrorist in the audio claims to be calling from the phone of a woman that he had just murdered. This audio was played today by Israel's foreign minister at the United Nations. I should note, CNN cannot confirm the veracity of the audio, but it is part of this push by Israeli officials to remind the world of the heinous acts that happened that day. Anderson Cooper joins me now live in Tel Aviv. Anderson, obviously, we've spoken to Israeli officials. What they are trying to do by playing that that audio out loud is to remind everyone of the atrocities of what happened that day. Something that, of course, is this push that they're making as people are waiting to see what Israel's going to do with the ground invasion, what that's going to look like, and kind of making their argument for what happens next. Yeah, I mean, look... It's been just 17 days since the slaughter took place here, and I think there's many people here in Israel who feel that much of the world has moved on or no longer really wants to hear the stories. Or, And it is just now that we are really learning the full, and not even the full, we're just starting to learn the details of what happened on, on October 7th. And those details, like that audio, uh, are, are just sickening and something in, it's something new. I mean, w- some of the things we saw here, the, it wasn't just the personal brutality, the looking people in the eyes as they were slaughtered or throwing a grenade into a room full of people that were defenseless. It was the desire to videotape it with your iPhone and to call your parents about it and brag about it to your parents. And when Brock Levinson in your Oz, a 75-year-old woman, was shot in her living room, the gunman gained access to her Facebook account 
and they live-streamed an image of her with them standing over her laying on the ground in a pool of blood, and her friends and family got that Facebook alert for them to log on and look at it, and that's how many people in her family. And that kind of personal terror is something that is, is, is something new, and we're seeing just the documentation, the, the desire for killers to document on a large scale what they were doing to use that for propaganda purposes, to show off to their friends, to put online and to make glossy terror porn videos. It's, this stuff is just now coming to light. And I mean, what I'm struck by with that is just the fact that it is everywhere. And when we were talking to parents on the ground in Israel, I mean, so many of these parents, parents of, of children, their family members, their relatives who are still being held hostage, they're having to look at a lot of these videos that Hamas is posting on Telegram channels, on other dark places of the Internet, looking for any shred of information about their loved ones and having to see all of this. Yeah, I mean, th this is, you know, there was such a lack of information early on and such chaos and confusion here that, that there wasn't information from the IDF. The IDF was trying to hunt down, you know, terrorists who were still roaming around uh, along the border. So families, and, and families still, are looking through jihadist videos online and looking through these videos online just for a glimpse, some word of their loved one. And it is, um, you know, it, it is an indignity on top of an indignity on top of a horror. Yeah, it absolutely is. Anderson, thank you for being there on the ground. We'll check back in with you later. Right now, of course, as Anderson was noting, Families of over 200 hostages are still desperate for information about those loved ones that are being held by Hamas. The families and their supporters were in the streets of New York today, outside of the United Nations. That includes the family of 23-year-old American Hirsch Goldberg Poland. They are demanding answers about his condition, his whereabouts, after he was attacked and kidnapped by Hamas at the site of that Nova Music Festival on October 7th. In that attack, Hirsch's left hand, part of his arm, were severed from his body. You can see that in videos that has been posted by Hamas online. His parents, Rachel Goldberg and John Polin, are here with me in studio tonight. And I just want to thank you both for being here and that you had to, to listen to that audio because I know that's, that's not easy. And Rachel, something that you said that struck me today was that you still have no answers. Right. None about right. your son. Right. How do you deal with that on a daily basis? Um, well, I've said this many times. We live in a parallel universe from when this started to happen. So we're like in this other dimension than people who haven't had this kind of trauma happen. Um, we talk to other families with children who are missing or other loved ones who are missing who feel exactly the same. Yeah. Um, for us, we try very hard every day to work and work to try to figure out other ways to find out information, um, to help push the cause of how do we get all of these hostages home. So we stay very busy. And I mean, what is the latest that you've heard from either the US government, the Israeli government, the United, anyone, has anyone, I mean, given any kind of update or glimmer of hope from these talks that are happening behind the scenes? No, we've got no information no updates, and no specific reason to have a glimmer of hope other than it's what we hold on to. That is what keeps us going, is the hope that this is going to have an ending that is okay. But that's driven on by, by just focus on the mission 
not based on anything we've heard or learned. And I know one thing that is kind of been, you've been piecing this information together yourself. You have a team at your home in Jerusalem working on trying to figure out more. And I was struck by something you said that you learned from a woman who was in the shelter with your son as Hamas was attacking it, throwing grenades into there, uh, that a Bedouin man came in and did something really remarkable. Right. Um, It actually made me feel like this whisper of positivity because she explained that um, when all the kids from the music festival went running into this bomb shelter, there was a Bedouin man who worked um, at the kibbutz across the street who also ran in for shelter. And as Hamas was getting closer, he said to the kids, everybody be quiet. I'm going to go outside and talk to them. And he went outside. And in Arabic, he explained, I'm a Muslim. Everybody in there is Muslim. It's my family. You don't have to go check. Trying to deter Trying to save them because he knew, you know, bad things would be happening to them. And um, he could have just gone out and in Arabic said, I'm a Muslim. And maybe they would have said, oh, okay, great. And then they would have left him be. But instead, because he was trying to protect these 29 Jewish kids who were smushed in there, um, they, uh, they beat him brutally. And she, the witness who I spoke to, didn't know if he had lived or died because then they went in after beating him and that's when the whole attack began. But just that he had the courage to do the right thing and in a scary situation to, to be really human and in a place and in a moment where the whole world was upside down, it really just made me feel hope. Which is something I'm sure you haven't felt very much of these days. Right, that there's still really goodness in the world, especially when we're so bifurcated and thinking it's an us versus them, and it's not. When you look at the video that Anderson showed you of your son, I know that was a really uh, remarkable moment for you to actually be able to see him. I mean, he's gravely wounded, though, and it's, it's tough to even see that video. When you know what kind of condition he's in, at least medically, that he needs real attention, and you see what's happening with these talks over, you know, Hamas wants more fuel, they want a ceasefire in order to let more hostages out, do you think a ceasefire would be helpful at this point? Look, our main interest is bring home Hirsch, our son. We understand there's also a national interest. Although, to be honest, through both of those lenses, I think we should be buying time. And so... You'd like more time. I'd like more time, yes. I think all the hostage families feel that way. Really? Uh, anyone that I've spoken to. I mean, it's hard to say, no, go ahead, go in. And these, this vulnerable group of 200 and whatever's left, 18 people, you know, let's make them even more vulnerable just feels counterintuitive to someone who, if you are one of the relatives of those loved ones. Um, But we'll see, we'll see what happens. Do you fear that if Israel does move forward with this ground invasion, that it it makes the release of your son just by practical terms of how ugly everyone that we've spoken to, former defense officials have said that will be, do you think it, it makes his release less likely? 
I mean, to be honest with you, I don't think that there's like a rational playbook here. So I don't know what the intentions are, long-term, short-term, war, ceasefire. I don't, I don't know, you know, the psyche of the people in charge who, in Hamas who are deciding the fate of uh, these 216 or 18. The number keeps changing. Yeah, every and then they've released sure. a couple, you know, four people. But then the number went up again. So um, it's just a big unknown. It seems from testimonies from the four who have been released a little bit that they're spread out, the hostages, mm -hmm. they're separated. Many of them at least are apparently deep, deep underground in hidden tunnels. Um, it's chaos already. Um, as things escalate, that chaos is not going to be diminished. I think there are a lot of people watching right now who are sitting at home wondering how you have the strength to even come on and speak in an interview, go to the United Nations, speak, do, get out of bed. Right. What would you say to them? I really think, honestly, we get a lot of very encouraging WhatsApps and emails. And I honestly think, I don't know any parent who would not do what we're doing to save their kid. I just don't. So I don't think what we're doing is unusual for this situation. I just think the situation is really unusual. So people aren't usually put in this situation. But there's no parent who isn't going to run to the end of the earth to save their kid. I think that I've said there's no partial success here. It's not like we could be 50% successful or 98% successful. Either we bring Hirsch home alive or we don't. When it's that black and white, there's no choice but to just run 20, 21, 22 hours a day, run around the world, hop on planes, hop off planes, to try to accomplish that mission. Yeah. We're all hoping that you're reunited with him so and that all the hostage families are. Definitely. I want to thank you for coming on and, and for being gracious enough to come and speak with us and, and obviously um, to talk to us about this very difficult issue. Thanks thank for you. having us. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you, John. And we'll be back in just a moment. Tonight, we're getting more details about the 2,000 U.S. forces who have now been placed on high alert for potential deployment to the Middle East. Among them, we are told, are experts in complex military urban environments and military explosives. The Pentagon says that U.S. troops have been attacked at least 13 times in just the last week by Iranian-backed militias in Iraq and Syria. On top of that, the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, is warning, given those attacks, that the U.S., in his words, will act swiftly and decisively if it is attacked by Iran or those militias that Iran backs. With me now for a perspective on what the U.S. is doing in response to this is retired Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling. Thank you so much for being here. I mean, what does it tell you that these explosives experts are among those who are being prepped to potentially deploy to the Middle East, given what we are seeing happen, not just in Israel, but on its borders on the north and the south? First, Caitlin, I'd say it's not a surprise to have um, these kind of experts, EOD experts, Explosive Ordnance Detachment personnel. It's part of a bigger package. And when you're talking about the Secretary of Defense uh, signing off on a PTDO, a prepare to deploy orders, that tells me that they've put this package together with all sorts of things 
that could contribute potentially to helping Israel in this kind of environment. Specifically, the, uh, uh, the explosive ordnance detachment, the EOD teams, mm -hmm. those are going to be critically important during an incursion into Gaza, because I think what we're going to see the Israelis face are not only uh, ambushes, defensive ambushes for the kind of tanks that you're showing on the screen right now. It's going to be a very tough environment for those tanks and personnel carriers and uh, bulldozers and engineers equipment to move through areas. One of the things that will be in place along those routes are improvised explosive devices, IED. What I would also suggest, you're going to start hearing a, a term called uh, 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 it, it's ex explosively formed penetrators, EFP. Those are particularly designed by Iranians. They've been given to their proxies and they can actually sear through some of these armored vehicles. They're very tough to defuse and they're very tough to define. They were a plague on, on US soldiers in Iraq. We know all about them. They are deadly. And I think the Israeli forces are gonna see those uh, as they go into Gaza. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's kind of been when we've talked about what these Israeli forces, a lot of them reservists who have now been mobilized, are, are preparing to potentially confront if they do go in, when they do go in. I mean, that questions what is happening with the prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. Obviously, he's someone we know has been seen as being cautious about military operations. I mean, given what you just laid out, what these soldiers may be facing when they go into Gaza, is that part of why do you think there has been this delay and why Israel has not gone into Gaza yet? Oh, uh, certainly. It's a series of things, Caitlin. It's, first of all, the mobilization of 300,000. That's four times as many as Israel has mobilized in the last two decades. Secondly, it's the fact, as you just said, these are young troopers, the majority of them. Now, Israel has a very good reserve force, and they're, and they're, they're comp competent and capable, but they haven't deployed into this kind of scenario that they're going to see the urban environment, which is Gaza. The third thing is, whenever you go into an operation, you just don't roll in with all these tanks and personnel carriers. You, you have intelligence drive your operations. And because uh, Israel truthfully has taken the, the eye off the ball, which is Gaza for the last at least five years, they don't have as much as intelligence as they should about the area. What do these forces go in uh, to do? What are their objectives? What are their missions? Yeah. Where do they go? And plus you add the tunnel complexes to that and that just exacerbates the issue. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because before I let you go, I do wanna ask you about the decision-making and the decision-makers because I mean, clearly there's such signs of infighting that the New York Times noted that, that Netanyahu, his defense minister, who I should note earlier this year, he fired him and then unfired him, and the military chief of staff, they had to put out this statement kind of assuring the public that they're working in close and full cooperation. I think if you put that statement out, it doesn't make people feel that you actually are doing that. If there is a disconnect among those three, how much does that affect what could happen on the ground to these IDF soldiers? Well, yeah, there has certainly been a rift between the military and the government over the last several years. That's been in open source reporting. It's been in the Israeli newspaper. Haratz has reported that. So what we're talking about is trying to get on the same sheet of music when you're putting young Israelis in harm's way. And when you have differences of opinions of a prime minister versus his defense minister versus a coalition government, remember the guy that, that uh, Netanyahu brought in is Benny Gantz. He used to be the chief of staff of the Israeli military. He was not a big fan of Mr. Netanyahu's. So there's certainly differences between uh, individuals. Personalities matter in these kind of things. 
And it, it will cause some challenges in terms of getting a, a plan that's workable, that the military can execute and it can achieve success. And it, under these kind of situations, it's going to be very difficult. Yeah. Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling, as always, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Caitlin. Ahead, we're going to focus on what is happening in Gaza. Eight trucks that were loaded with water, with food, with medicine did make it into Gaza today. But it's too little too late for the six hospitals in the region that are now just closed after they ran out of fuel. We'll have the latest on the crisis that is unfolding in Gaza next. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. In one of the most oil-rich parts of the planet, the lack of fuel is reaching a critical level in Gaza tonight. Yet of the 28 trucks that were supposed to go into Gaza today, we are told only eight made it through the Rafah crossing. Just eight. That is according to a United Nations relief agency. None of those, of course, were carrying fuel. That has been a major dispute with Israel tonight. The World Health Organization says that six hospitals in Gaza have been forced to close because they don't have any fuel. That's fuel that was powering the generators that was giving these hospitals power. And because of that, the lives of almost 130 preemie babies are at risk tonight, as are nearly 1,000 dialysis patients. Just to get a sense of what is happening on the ground, what people are living through, I'm joined tonight by Dorgam Abu Salim, who lives in Washington, D.C., but whose parents, as well as his little sister and his big brother, are in still the central Gaza Strip. And Dorgam, I'm so glad you're here with me tonight. Your little sister is in Gaza. She sent a voice message earlier describing just their their living situation. It's in Arabic, but we have translated it here. I'm really grateful that you shared that with us. And I want our audience to just be able to, to listen to what she said. Insani, ma fi kahraba, ma fi mai, min 15 yom. عم نشرب مي مالحة ويمكن نخزنها كمان الخبز صار إشي كتير نادر الأدوية انتهت من كل مكان واللي عنده أي أمراض مزمنة معرض للموت بأي لحظة إحنا بنعيش اللحظات اللي بنستنى نموت فيها إحنا كل يوم بيمرق علينا زي الكابوس في غزة حتى اللي عنده أطفال حتى اللي عنده ناس كبار بالعمر ما في حليب ما في بامبرز ما في أي شيء يخلي الطفل يقدر حتى إنه يعيش حرفياً she says every day is like a nightmare and that somehow the situation gets worse than it was before, which, I mean, it just it's hard to imagine getting worse than what she just described. Babies not having medicine, old people not having what they need. I mean, what goes through your mind when you think of what your family is living through right now? You know, I'm just absolutely uh, horrified at what my family is going through for no other reason than simply existing. Uh, you know, we are uh, our home, the only home we've ever known. Uh, my father is 80 years old. He's paralyzed. My mom is in her late 60s. She is blind. And as you mentioned, my younger sister, my, our youngest sister is there as well as our eldest brother. Uh, and the situation is just incredibly unbearable and overwhelming and now, this is the reality that I am also enduring at a distance 24-7. Uh, 
you know, just thinking of the circumstances that they're going through is is consuming and and truly difficult that, you know, we are having to go through this tragedy. Your dad is paralyzed and you say your mom is blind. Have you talked to, have you been able to speak to them? Not, not in the past few days. Uh, I've heard from my sister about the family through the voice notes, uh, one of which I shared with you, but I have not had a chance to hear the voice of my parents and they have not had a chance to hear my voice. Uh, you know, in the best of circumstances these days, I might get a text message with one or two words, depending on the bandwidth of the internet connection, if it is available at all, that would simply say alive. You know, this is how wow. low the bar has become for us. Uh, and these days, I am simply timestamping the last messages I would receive from my family, just in case it might, in fact, be the last message. I mean, that's un unfathomable. That you're waiting on a text from your family that just says one word and it's just alive. Yes. I mean, th that's, that's the reality of our situation right now. And, you know, the tragedy of it all is... What we're seeing unfold in the Gaza Strip it seems to be, you know, worsening uh, with the blessing and support of most major powers. Uh, and, and, you know, for my parents uh, and for myself, we just have to wonder why. What, what wrong have we done? What wrong have all the families and all the people that are going through this, have they done? Whole families have been completely exterminated. And every day I'm wondering if my family is going to be next. I mean, what is it even like to to just be wondering that. I mean, as you're sitting here and as we were just speaking with Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling about what a ground invasion could look like, I mean, if the Israeli government was, was listening, what would you want to say to them about your family that's there? You know, I, I would simply say, I mean, not just to the Israeli government, but to every decision maker that's involved in, in this, uh, you know, tragedy and, and all the crimes that we, are, that we are witnessing being committed against us. There is another way, uh, you know, around this. Uh, and it's, it's interesting that you mentioned the segment that appeared right before mine, because mm -hmm. I thought it was an interesting juxtaposition, you know, of all the buildup and all the violence uh, that is in the pipeline, and then all the human beings whose lives are, are being reduced to nothing, uh, all while being vilified and dehumanized for no other reason than simply existing. You know, I was talking to a friend of mine earlier, and I said to him, the only way we could make sense of this, the only way we could rationalize it is by accepting the awful presumption that Palestinians are not human. This is, this is where we're at. And we are appealing for our humanity uh, and our very existence uh, beyond the politics and beyond all the discussions and the debates that are taking place. This is very existential to us. And it's very, very scary. It's terrifying. And you are human and I'm, I'm so sorry about what your family's going through, but it's important for people to hear what your, what your parents, what your little sister are living through. And so, Dorgam Abusalim, thank you for, for coming on and will, being willing to do that tonight. Thank you so much. I appreciate you for having me. Yeah, we'll stay in touch with you. As this is at such a critical time globally, I mean, here at home, it just makes what is happening on Capitol Hill look even more ridiculous than, than it already would. The U.S. government is completely paralyzed. You've been watching today as what's happening in Israel, what's happening in Gaza. On Capitol Hill, a third Republican speaker nominee has just dropped out of the race. That is hours after he was just nominated. Right now on Capitol Hill, there is voting taking place. Of course, aid to Israel hangs in the balance as well as to Ukraine and to other places. We'll be live and get an update in just a moment.
Oh boy, if you are having trouble keeping track of the dysfunction and chaos, and I'm putting it lightly, of House Republicans right now, imagine trying to lead them. Clearly it's not a job anyone really wants, or maybe a lot of people want it, but they can't necessarily get it. Right now, House Republicans are huddled, again, behind closed doors, trying to sort this out. This comes after another episode of internal chaos. The third nominee for speaker has failed, and so Tom Emmer dropped out, dropped out of the race, and joining me now is CNN Capitol Hill reporter Melanie Zanona, who I'm imagining has crossed out a lot of names. I mean, Melanie, some of the names that I'm looking at now, it's like, wait, who, which one is this? I mean, they've like run through the entire roster of House Republicans, it feels like. <laughs> yes, scraping the bottom of the barrel here. But look, this is the fourth time Republicans are now trying to huddle behind closed doors to select their nominee for speaker. Fourth time in three weeks, and just twice alone today, I should point out. Right now, there's five candidates who are initially in the race. They've been whittling those candidates down through secret ballot votes. It is down now to two candidates. That's Mike Johnson, a member of the House Judiciary Committee, and also Byron Donalds. He's a House Freedom Caucus member from Florida. But, Caitlin, there was a big warning sign on the last ballot, and that is that 34 Republicans voted for someone other than one of those candidates. So that is a huge issue for either of those candidates. And in fact, they made a motion to figure out who those members were. 33 of them were for Kevin McCarthy. One of them was for oh. Jim Jordan. And just a sign of the enormous distrust right now in the ranks. Some lawmakers are now suspecting that McCarthy and his allies are behind that move. So just a massive amount of anger and frustration. Let's listen to what some of those members had to say. It's outrageous. It really is. It's outrageous. We're very upset. The calls we're getting and everything else, they just feel like we can't manage. Get it done. Like, like honestly, at this point, it's been the same theme for a week. This is beyond frustrating. We need to get our act together, as we say in the Army, get our head out of our rear. My fear is if we keep doing this, somebody is going to end up siding with the Democrats. And Kaylin, as we were speaking, I'm actually learning that Mike Johnson, one of those members I was talking about, has just clinched the nomination hmm. for speaker. But as we have seen, that does not mean that member is going to be able to get 217 votes on the floor. So the next steps here is that Republicans will huddle once again tomorrow here in Longworth, 9 a.m. tomorrow. They're going to do some more roll call votes to figure out behind closed doors whether Mike Johnson has 217. But just an, a massive amount of uncertainty and distrust right now in the Republican ranks, Caitlin. Yeah, not only does it not mean they can get to 217, it has spelled doom for, for everyone else. We'll see if it's different for the congressman from Louisiana. Melanie Zanona, thank you for that reporting. Up next, we have new information that we're getting in on how Hamas pulled off that surprise, brutal, barbaric attack on Israel on October 7th. That in a moment. Tonight, we are learning more about how the planning for that deadly October 7th attack by Hamas on Israel went undetected for two years. Sources tell CNN tonight that Hamas operatives were actually communicating through a network of landlines that were built into those tunnels that we have discussed that are underneath Gaza. We'll have more on that tomorrow night. Thank you so much for joining us. CNN Newsnight with Abby Phillips starts right now. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.